people have a really hard time literally listening to sex workers. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. For this episode, we watched Shit's Creek and asked Charlotte Shane, who gets a happy ending? So Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging this week. Absolute pure fluff. I've gotten into this show on Netflix called The Parisian Agency, or just, I think it's just called L'Agence in French. And it is an entire family with four sons and a grandma who are all involved in a high-end real estate business in Paris and its suburbs. And it is just a lovely voyeuristic traipse through beautiful chateau villa apartments that you can never afford uh, with this family who is just stressed about getting wealthy people what they want. Get the wealthy people what they want. Exactly. That, that sounds wonderful. Are you binging or cringing, Lori? I'm cringing this week and they are doing tons of media. So you've probably heard about this film, Stillwater. It's a new film by Tom McCarthy. It stars Matt Damon. He looks very serious on the poster. But what I'm cringing is the fact that the film is loosely based on the Amanda Knox story. But as Amanda Knox herself has called out in a really well done Twitter thread, I'll make sure you all have that link in the show notes. The entire film is profiting off of her name, face and story. But this is without her consent, without her profit. And it's perpetuating a lot of painful myths about her case and involvement in Meredith Kircher's death. So that is not cool. Okay, Monica Lewinsky taught us about reclaiming our name and in a post Lewinsky world, um, this should not happen, especially to young women. Um, We need to be able to protect our own stories and tell our own stories. So cringe of the week, Stillwater. And I'm really excited to talk about today's topic with you, Layla. So I am going to ask you to try to explain this without messing up Schitt's Creek, Charlotte Shane. Shit's Creek, Charlotte Shane, Charlotte Shane, Shit's Creek. We have invented a tongue twister for ourselves this week because we are talking to Charlotte Shane about Shit's Creek. We're specifically talking about the series finale. I don't know about you, but I was so sorry to see this show end. The series finale is called Happy Ending, which we find out means both a rub and tug massage that pops up as a surprise in the middle of the episode, but also the happy ending that we all wanted for America's favorite queer couple, David and Patrick, and for the Rose family in general on this beloved show. Absolutely. And we love a double entendre. And I really just want to say, you know, with this conversation happening just months after the Atlanta spa shootings, that really exposed how poorly media handles conversations about sex work and violence against women. Um, And so I'm really excited that our guest is someone who pushes back against this. Our guest today is Charlotte Shane. She's an essayist, she's a writer, and she's the author of both the newsletter and the book Prostitute Laundry, where she chronicled all the details of her own life, including her own experience with sex work. That's right. She also happens to have one of my favorite Twitter accounts, Come for the Critiques of Carceral Feminism and Stay for the Cat Picks. You will not regret it. So we talked to Charlotte about the happy endings on this show, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Boogie, boogie, 
Welcome, Charlotte. We're thrilled to have you here. And I'm very excited to discuss Schitt's Creek's series finale with you. Thank you. Yes, I am a Schitt's Creek fan and not to preempt maybe what you were going to say, but I was somebody who really resisted the show at first. Like I watched a few episodes and thought this is terrible. I'm embarrassed for the people involved. I can't believe I see folks tweeting about this. And then thank God I stuck it out because obviously like Alexis has become a very important figure in my heart. There is something that is all that makes me self-question when I like something that many other people like. But that's that's a good lead into the fact that, that our topic today is happy endings and specifically the kind that can happen in some massage parlors as opposed to the ones that happen at the end of fairy tales. And uh, just to get right into it, I know that you've criticized the media for covering these stories poorly and with a pearl clutching tone about sex work in general. So what do you think about Schitt's Creek's decision to include this storyline of sex work in the series finale? There's a way in which it really fits the sensibility of the show, right? Which is that things can go well. They don't want to ever harm their characters, right? Which I love about the show. That feels really special to me that I don't ever have to watch it and worry that something cruel is going to happen to these people, you know, for the sake of drama or for the sake of like slapsticky comedy. But they do have obstacles and challenges and you know, things can never go quite right at the same time, of course, because that would be anticlimactic and kind of disappointing in its own way. So of course, you know, it's like it's raining on the wedding day and then this surprise hand job in the middle of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think they do a good job with it in as much as it isn't really even dwelt upon, right? It kind of like gets just almost a beat and they don't just like fuss over it too much. And I think there are a number of factors that contribute to their ability to do that in a way that wouldn't kind of upset their audience for the most part, which is that the show is set in Canada, right? And sex work is not as criminalized there. And then the fact that it's a guy receiving from a guy right? is like somehow generally like more palatable or like permissible to people. And then also the fact that it is a hand job, you know, quote unquote, like just a hand job, as opposed to some other, like, like a penetrative sex. Totally. And I mean, one of the things about this episode is that we actually only see and hear from the masseur, who is a sex worker as well, very briefly. And to your point, he's a man. He's not only a man, he's a white man. And dare I say, he's like an attractive looking man. Like I think there was at some point an editorial decision, like he doesn't look hard up. Like he's, you know, within the same universe as David and Patrick themselves. And of course this goes against every stereotype that we have around who primarily does this work and specifically with happy endings, it goes against this dominant stereotype of an Asian woman who's of a lower class and I'm curious, like, do you think that was kind of like this deliberate decision by the show creators? Like, and like, does this gag of the episode rely on no one and especially not like a low income woman of color having been truly exploited? Yeah, that's a great point about the fact that the masseuse sort of presents as someone who could be like a, a partner you know, to to David or or anyone else in the show, right? Where he seems like he's kind of of the same class. And like you said, he's attractive. And 
There's also this sort of hedge in that nobody sought it out, right? Like that's kind of their get out of jail free card, which is that David didn't know it was going to happen. And Patrick was not intentionally requesting it. So they have this kind of like plausible deniability and innocence where it's kind of like, oh, well, we were not actually hiring someone for their sexual labor. That was an accident. Yeah, they have a very unconventional relationship. And it's interesting you say that the show's set in Canada because I know it's filmed in Canada. I'm not sure if they leave that purposefully ambiguous. It seems to be this kind of milk toast world that they've entered. I think one of the things that I found really interesting about the way they show that relationship overall is how, you know, even the billboard for the series finale was this, you know, groundbreaking moment where this gay male kiss was planted over Hollywood. It got press on its own. And the whole relationship arc of David and Patrick is really queering a lot of things that we traditionally see only cishet couples get to go through with their fairy tale endings. There's, you know, this picturesque high-end wedding that they're planning. They were booking a haikuist. Everything is just this example of Dan Levy's like masterful taste. And I'm wondering, you know, leaving aside sex work, do you think that this show is going to have a lasting impact on the way that we see couples in general and who's allowed to have these kinds of happy endings. All of what you said, I think was totally smart and on the money where there's a way in which it's like the act is sort of desexualized, right? It just becomes part of what relaxes him. And I think the happy ending actually does have a place in pop culture where it's it's almost more like sex work adjacent than actual sex work or, or even sex adjacent than actual sex, right? Like given the way we think about what counts, like quote unquote counts as sex and what doesn't. I'm thinking about, I don't know if either of you watched it or heard about it, the season of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills where Denise Richards talked about <laughs> hiring someone to give a happy ending to her husband. I only know this from Black Twitter. <laughs> and I only know this from Celebrity Gossip. Right. But there's a way in which the happy ending, I think, can be treated as a joke because it doesn't bring up the things that most people become hung up on in sex work, which is the idea of like a man particularly or like a cis man penetrating, having intercourse with a cis woman, which is kind of like the quintessential sex act and then also like quintessential sex work act. So there is a way in which the happy ending isn't treated as sexual in the context of the show, right? Not that I think they needed to do more per se, because as you also said, it's sort of like part of Schitt's Creek world is that it is this like milk toast, you know, kind of like middle-class, like white world. It's like their relationship also doesn't seem super sexual, right? Even if they're kissing or touching, it's like, you don't get the sense of like, they're so freaking hot for each other. Totally. And you mentioned this, Charlotte, earlier, but, you know, all of this, I think, is part of why the show did not have to dwell on this. And, you know, there's, I think, an alternate universe where this is a big deal on their wedding day. And, you know, David has now just cheated on Patrick. But what I appreciate about this show is that they didn't take it there. And I'm curious whether or why you feel like it didn't count as cheating in their minds. How did they get away with that? (laughs) The unwittingness of it 
is what it kind of hinges on, you know, whereas they all, they each get to say that they, well, it's basically that David gets to act like, Patrick, I was doing what you planned for me. I was going along with what you had in mind. And Patrick gets to say, like, why would I want that to happen? And David's like, well, I don't know, but that's like not my business, right? <laughs> you, you told me I should do this thing. So I was going along with it. Where the, the confusion and the misunderstanding like defangs it, right? It's not a transgression. It's not an intentional transgression. And I'm totally with you, Lori, which is like, I love that it doesn't become something that's going to threaten their wedding. You you never are like, they're going to call off the wedding because of this. You know, that's not a possibility. They love each other. They're happy together. That feels good to me. I really do. Like I said at the start, you know, I, I love Shit's Creek for what it is. I love the gentleness with which it handles its characters. I think it's like really refreshing and I don't need it to be anything else. But by that same turn, I don't know if either of you watched like, it might have been like a little Netflix thing about the final season. I definitely saw Dan Levy reading aloud a letter from the mom of a queer person. Yes, about yes. And the whole cast bawling. I think that was the same vignette. <laughs> Missed this. I need to check it out. It's, it's absolute tearjerker. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm remembering. And it's like, what felt weird to me in watching that whole thing was like, you know, it starts to take on this air of self-congratulation. And I don't want to take anything away from people who were moved by watching it, you know, and felt like it really did something powerful for them or anything away from the cast and crew. It's like, you know, I don't need the show to be other than it was, but I also don't think there's a need to overstate kind of like it's radical, you know, value because there's a way in which it, it is kind of like the human rights campaign, you know, like wanting gay people to be married version of gay rights, right? Where it's just mainly like gay people can be just like straight people. That's a good point. I mean, I love, I respect a show that ends at its peak and I think they probably were trying to avoid that. But one of the things that you were just saying about it not it not being a big deal for them, I think is in part because there's no sneaking around. The common media narrative, the way we usually see this kind of scenario play out is like a married hetero man cheating on his wife or sneaking around or going to a massage parlor, hoping for a happy ending, but maybe not asking one for one directly. And I'm wondering if we would have a different view of what happened on this episode if like Stevie had gone with David and they'd both gotten happy ending massages or she'd been the one who purchased the happy ending for him. There's another, I hadn't remembered this, but Lori reminded me that Ronnie, the town's black lesbian character, also has a transactional sex moment in the same episode. And it's also treated as just a beat. And I'm wondering what you think about like, who are we seeing and does that make a difference about the judgments we make? Oh, that's such a good, you know, I obviously like I rewatched the episode and you're talking about the, the part where Ronnie's like, I know the florist or whatever, right? Exactly. She's like, when I say I know the florist, I mean, I know the florist. And like, it's amazing because Ronnie's also super confident and like throughout the entire show, just kind of like always dropping these little gems about her, like sexual conquest. Like I could see Ronnie just getting it across town for sure. Absolutely. She has like more swagger than anyone else in the cast. 100%. It's not even a competition. I don't know. I love this alternate universe where it's like Stevie's idea or even where 
it's like Ronnie's idea. And Ronnie is like, I'm going to guide you through this. I know what's going on. Like you're in good hands. That would be really fun and so different. And I guess what seems to me is like, usually desire and initiative are the shameful aspects, right? It's like that you desired someone else and then that you followed through on that desire or you, you know, you, you desired an experience with someone else, doesn't matter who they are. And you followed through. It's kind of like, those are the things usually that seem to be at the heart of the, the betrayal and the transgression of, you know, quote unquote cheating. And also this idea of like disease, you know, where you're like, you've exposed the marriage to something, you know, because you've done this with a stranger or whatever else. And the, circumstances in the show sidestep all that. It's just like a relief. Weirdly, I don't, I don't know about YouTube, but a lot of the dominant emotion I felt when I would would watch Schitt's Creek was just relief. I'm like, I'm so glad, you know, nobody is going to be raped. You know, like I don't have to like, you know, worry about somebody being intentionally humiliated. Like, you know, it's, it, it just, felt really nice to know that the disruptions were not going to be that profound, I guess in part maybe because it's sort of like, well, the worst thing possible has already happened to this family. You know, I actually, you know, I, I love the class politics of this show. Like, I love that a lot of the humor just comes from making fun of rich people and like having some schadenfreude around that. Like, I think that's wonderful as well. It is a light show. It is a fun show. I think we'd be remiss not to bring up Hallie Lieberman had a piece in Vice that I think sort of well crystallized how the media often portrays sex workers as like victims of human trafficking and coercion, but that actually just, you know, people choose sex work because it provides a good income and like, especially low-income women and like immigrant women choose that. I'm curious if you just want to comment at all, Charlotte, about like the media piece in all of this and whether this episode of Shit's Creek like neatly falls into traditional patterns of media. It pushes back against them in interesting ways or just kind of like sidesteps them for laughs. One of the weird things about sex work in pop culture is that cultural artifacts actually seem sort of more savvy in a way than like the news media about recognizing that sex work also occurs at different class stratifications, right? So like you can have a TV show where there's like a quote unquote call girl and you don't have to worry that she's being exploited. If anything, you're kind of like, oh, what a cool character. Like she's really in control. She's making really good money. You know, she's dressed elegantly. Like she's having conversation and dinner, whatever. And that will exist against, you know, like really reductive and unkind uh, like portrayals of street workers. But sometimes like, like you say, like the news media kind of can't, figure out how to integrate any of this analysis, right? Because because <laughs> it's not like I trust most news like outlets to have a great grasp of class or the movements of capital in general, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's news media and also to quote your Twitter back to you, the uh, supposed liberals <laughs> in the world. I was just uh, seeing a tweet from you contrasting sex worker advocates sharing stories and calling for decriminalization versus quote unquote, alleged leftists saying she was trafficked. She's a victim. Who can we put in jail for this? 
you know, Lena Dunham and Rashida Jones more recently and Meryl Streep and Kate Winslet. There's a long list of famous actresses who, in response to people saying we should decriminalize sex work, there's a whole bunch of activists and actress activists who don't seem to get it. Uh, And I saw Eva DeVille quoted in a piece saying, I'm so tired of this paradigm appearing in every discourse around sex work. Please change the record ask different questions, ask not if the work oppresses us, but why society finds it necessary to deny us access to rights, resources that everyone else gets, ask how we can shake off this binary perception and be seen for the ordinary working people that we are, ask how we can make it safer for us to work, ask us. And I'm wondering what you think we need to do to sort of break out of this binary. Yeah, well, one of the challenges, I think, particularly as you pointed out in terms of what causes celebrities endorse and are willing to put their name on, is that, you know, people who oppose sex worker rights have very successfully made sex worker rights sort of radioactive like morally and ethically, so that if you start talking about sex worker rights, they have a lot of very effective tools to say, like, you're advocating for men to have access to women. I mean, that is a mild way of putting it, right? They're going to use language that is a lot stronger than that. And I was talking with a friend recently, and I don't want to say too much to give away, like, what she does or who she works for. But I think people who who want, like, uh, more accurate attention to sex worker rights run up against a lot of resistance because some of these big personalities have very publicly said, like, this is a non-starter for me. And that's a really tough thing to work around. And the big source of frustration is that sex worker activists, you know, can very plainly say, and, and even a reporter can include this in a piece And it won't necessarily be people's takeaway. You know, people have a really hard time literally listening to sex workers. So in this piece that the New York Times ran recently, you know, where they spoke with this woman, Candy, who's an activist, an organizer, and did sex work as a teen, which people already are sort of like, you can't say somebody did sex work as a teen, right? This is Candy's own words. You know, in the piece, Candy says, sex work saved my life. In the piece, Candy also says, I don't want to go back to sex work. So, I mean, it's like, it's right there, right? Like, (laughs) this is like, it's a labor issue. Like, if you start being able to think about it from a position of labor politics, like labor rights, organizing, like people need money to live, you know, people have to choose among constrained choices every day, like these sort of things. I think that's an entry point, hopefully to some sort of solidarity, but, you know, I mean, the, the sex part of sex work, people can't get past it. Muddy Paws Rescue is working to build and support a thriving community of dog-loving humans dedicated to ending unnecessary euthanasia of companion dogs. They do this through shared learning and education, direct life-saving, and continuous innovation. By partnering with open intake shelters across the country, Muddy Paws Rescue has saved the lives of more than 5,000 dogs and puppies since 2016. 
And that number includes my dog, Carly, an adorable handful who's changed our lives for the past five years. Muddy Paws Rescue and its dedicated team of fosters, volunteers, and animal welfare advocates strive to be New York City's leader in responsible foster-based rescue practices. To learn more about how you can adopt, foster, volunteer, or donate, visit muddypawsrescue.org. We have one last question that is more on a fun note, Charlotte, and then we'll go to our cringe fire. But there have been rumors of a Schitt's Creek movie. If you could do some dream casting and or dream storyboarding, what storylines would you like to see? They could be sex work or not sex work related. What characters, guest stars, uh, where would you like to see these characters go from here? Okay, if we're keeping it in the theme of sex work, let's have Alexis start doing PR for some of the activist groups in Canada. (laughs) I love that. Can you imagine how amazing that would be? Where she'd be like, all right, ew, to like the politicians, right? (laughs) First of all, ew. I yeah, love it. Rose Apothecary can be taken over by sex workers organizing and Alexis, you know, walking around with her clipboard. I mean, sex work adjacent, I think um, Patrick could have an erotic dance career. Ooh, maybe the motel has red light special rooms. How about the motel opens a strip club, but a male strip club? Have either of you ever been to a male strip club? No, only female strip clubs. Yeah, I have. Oh, yes. Good. How'd you like it? I have hired a private male dancer for a bachelorette party and I loved every second of it. Maybe he was even surprised by how much we enjoyed ourselves. (laughs) It was great. I highly recommend. Vegas is a dreamland. Well, I think that question was sort of a preview and maybe good segue into our rapid fire final round, the cringe fire. So First question is, is there another show that you're binging right now, Charlotte? I pretty much only watch TV in the form of binging, but I am actually re-watching for probably the third time The Real Housewives of New York season 10. What makes season 10 so rewatchable? Season 10 has a feud between two friends that actually seems really legitimate, you know? So some, a lot of time, obviously like the show, they're always fighting, but it does sort of leave a different mark when it feels like, no, these are two real people who really cared about each other, who are very publicly like destroying that, you know, regard. So there's a big friendship feud in it. And um, they go to Cartagena and they have this quote unquote boat trip from hell where they have to stop filming. And they're all like, we almost died because the the seas are so rough. (laughs) It's, you know, just fun stuff, fun season. Can't look away. That sounds amazing. Well, I might need to get in. I've been like resisting the entire Real Housewives thing. So I'm like, I will be too into this, but uh, maybe it's my time. I would recommend starting with The Real Housewives of Potomac. For a long time, it was kind of like the unsung franchise, but now people are getting more into it. It's just really special. And it's it hasn't been airing that long. So if you want to get into it, you know, you aren't like committing to watching like 14 seasons or something. 
Amazing. Well, I will definitely look at that. Um, I might be blaming you for like losing hours of my life. Our next cringe fire question is what's something that you find cringy at the moment? I had to think about this for a little while. And this morning I just realized what should have come to my mind instantly was the couple's accounts on TikTok who do these fake pranks to each other all the time. You know, it's very gimmicky. It's staged. It's excruciating. (laughs) That is up there. But also I would say like fandom around politicians. Like I don't mind a little of it ironically, you know, like I about myself will often be like, nevertheless, she persisted. But real fandom around politicians, any cult of personality, I find really embarrassing and distressing to see. Right. You know, even when it's like a writer, just like a, or like a popular person on Twitter, it's hard to watch. Is part of the cringe there that like, you know, this good thing cannot last and there will be a milkshake duck moment where something comes out about them that ruins the cult hood and turns it against them. That's probably part of it. I mean, with politicians, it's just like, these people are not your friends. They're not actually your family members. For some people they are, right? (laughs) But for most of us, it's like, we should not be thinking of them that way. We shouldn't be thinking of our relationship with them in the context of something mutual, right? Like, and mutually rewarding or like mutually invested. And for other people, I think part of what it is, is just that I find it really weird and uncomfortable when a stranger is like too into me or like too supportive of me. So when I see other people cultivating that or really reveling in it, it just icks me out. I don't know. It, It like pushes on something in me where I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Yeah. Super creepy. I I definitely, I have that same reaction. And I feel like if I see celebrities political or uh, in the entertainment industry in real life, I actively act like I don't notice them and try very hard to stop anyone I'm with from interacting with them. (laughs) I was in the Amtrak station once like with Wallace Shawn and I held up my phone. I know it looked like I was taking a picture of him and he gave me the dirtiest look. And I really was like, I'm not going to take a picture of you, Wallace Shawn. Like, come on, you're not like, you're not Brad Pitt. I'm not going to take a, I'm not going to post a picture of like Wallace Shawn on my Instagram. Yeah, I was texting somebody like, oh, I'm sitting next to Wallace Shawn. But, but I did feel bad. Like, I definitely made it. I, I understand why he thought what he thought. Wallace Shawn is such a funny example because that's yeah. a highbrow celebrity sighting. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I think I would have approached being honest. I try to be cool as well. And and it's funny because when I was in journalism school, I feel like I really geeked out over Wallace Shawn and his Harvard crew's um, story. Like he went to school with Hendrik Hertzberg and they all ended up writing at the New Yorker except him. That's someone I would fan out over. Carla, you picked the wrong podcasters. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you'd like to either see portrayed for the first time or better portrayed in media? I don't know if this totally counts, but I would love to see abortion more often. I know that's a pretty common complaint. I guess unintentional pregnancy, maybe I would also like, I would like to see more often. I'd like to see abortion as a solution to the unintended pregnancy. And uh, I also would like to see I think sex where people are laughing and like having, you know, having fun where it's like funny and sexy at the same time and not just sort of like that it's either funny because it's somehow failing 
or that it's totally serious because it's so passionate. I like that. Lastly, do you have a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality? This could be from TV, film, or literature. I feel like this question's really hard. I don't, do people tell you it's a hard question or do they usually know right away? They tell us it's a hard question. <laughs> Honestly, you know where I got this question? I stole it from the original Nerve and it was a question on the first dating profile I ever made and one I really judged potential dates by. <laughs> Oh my God. That's amazing. I love original nerve. Nerve was so like foundational. Nerve was amazing. The original nerve. Do you remember if you saw somebody's answer to this, that was really good. Like on, when you were looking at the dating profiles or really bad. I feel like such a narcissist. I just remember that my own was enemy at the gates in the barracks without waking up the other comrades. Oh, <laughs> which is a uh, Rachel Weiss at her hottest. Wow. No one's ever flipped the script, Charlotte. I've never heard that answer. I just read Enemy at the Gates. <laughs> Ooh. Which is just, it has no sex in it. It's a World War II. It's a World War II history book. <laughs> I know. And it's really like, oh, wow. Stalingrad really affected all of our lives in ways that we didn't realize. But also, <laughs> what would it be like to be a couple sharing a room with hundreds of other comrades? I don't know. I'm so happy that got, that, that came out. That really <laughs> made my day. Stalingrad's my favorite. Stalingrad's my favorite thing. <laughs> okay. So I thought about this and I meant to double check to make sure my memory serves, but I'm pretty sure it does. I think one of the earliest scenes in Clute with Jane Fonda is her at work because she's playing a prostitute and she checks her watch behind the guy's head. That would probably be my favorite. That's amazing. No, that, that's a flex. Yeah. <laughs> That's a flex. Amazing. Charlotte, you are fantastic. No, thank you both for your great questions. It was really fun to bond over obscure pop culture references. And I'm going to go check out Real Housewives because of you. And I got to read some, so. some war books. <laughs> I sincerely hope you both sit down with a nice glass of your preferred beverage and real house size of Potomac and enemy at the gates and just eat yourself. <laughs> I love it. We've got our marching orders. Thank you to our guest, Charlotte Shane. You can find her on Twitter at Charo Shane, C-H-A-R-O-S-H-A-N-E. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. D.L. Dallas Ingram created our theme song. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. And our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. You too can support the show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today to get cool perks like a shout out on the show. And now through August 15th, squad level members get cringe watchers mugs. You do not want to miss these. I'm sipping out of one right now. You can also show us your love by rating and reviewing the show. That part is free. Until next time, thank you so much for cringe watching with us.